0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to 2 Timothy chapter 4 actually won't be preaching at all about that video, but we thought it was nice for July 4th weekend uh, as we celebrate um, our country's uh, and a birthday, I guess. That's good, right? Uh, and, uh, and we celebrate the freedoms that we have to gather here uh, without fear of repercussion uh, of, our, of any kind of authorities or government, and we're grateful for that, but we mostly want to celebrate uh, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ as we know there are brothers and sisters around the world who that's the only freedom they have as they gather today, and so we want to be mindful of them and if you do not have a Bible, I want to remind you there's some black ones in a seat back in front of you, and we're going to be on page 1056 this morning. Um, before we jump in uh, to the sermon, there's, there's something I want to make mention of, and I would normally do this at the end, but we've got a baptism today, so I get to be in the waters at the end, and we're excited about that, aren't we? Um, but today is actually uh, the last Sunday at FBN for two uh, two families uh, that have kind of become near and dear to my heart, and, and I want to make a special mention of that. Michael and Amy Bates and Scott and Laurie McAllister. Uh, the Lord has, in His sovereign wisdom, uh, provided them opportunities elsewhere. Uh, new jobs, new homes, new challenges. Um, I've yelled at him about this, and he doesn't care, right? So, um, But uh, we're happy for them and thankful for them. And um, we talk all the time about when we come to Sydney Church, we want to bless... The back door as much as the front door, right? When people go out, we want to send them out with the goodness and grace of Jesus. And so I want to point them out to you today, and they're going to hate this. But I'm going to ask them to stand, and I feel free to do that because what are they going to do, not come back next Sunday, right? So uh, <laughs> Michael and Amy and your family, and Scott and Laura, could you stand? and Would you just give them a round of applause and thank them for... <clears throat> you can, I won't make you say, now. If you could stand the whole sermon, no, I'm kidding. All right, um, but honestly, right? They, they, their time here has been relatively short. Um, it's just the way the, the Lord worked out the time in their life. But uh, there's something that my father always in in like impressed onto me is that leave a place better than you found it. And they undoubtedly did. Um, the people who have served with them, the people who have been in groups with them, people who have been alongside them are, are all mourning this today um, because they're leaving this place better than they found it. And they've been a personal encouragement to me. And so we want to send them off uh, with the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. And may, may he use them to multiply his kingdom wherever they go. And so we're going to pray for that as we pray for the sermon. And I'm going to ask you to join me in that. So. God, we're thankful that you are a God on the move, uh, that you move your people, uh, you move your churches, you move uh, your gospel all the time. Uh, Lord, there's never a time that, that you're at rest. In fact, your son says that to this day you are working and that he's working with you. And so uh, we lift up these two dear families to you, and we're grateful. God, we're immensely grateful for the time we have with them. And we're immensely grateful for the impact they've made on this place. And we, we do pray that their time here would have been encouragement to their faith. And as they leave this place, they would leave it closer to you than they came uh, Lord, for the rest of us, as we turn our attention to your word, God, as we get to celebrate uh, with Skylar in baptism today, as we uh, get to, uh, to, to come together at the communion table, uh, even in our members meeting, God, and as we open your word, we just pray that your spirit would be undeniably here today. Uh, we gather in the name of Jesus and trust in his promise that he'll be here with us, and would you get the glory from all this? And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, between, I've had two, I've worked at two churches in different pastoring roles, right? And between them, for uh, about 19 months, I worked at a job uh, called, uh, a company called Endeavor Communications in Clover, Indiana. And they gave me an office and a phone, and the phone was almost totally useless because for the entire 19 months I worked there, it rang three times. And all three times, it was really bad news, okay? And so by the time this by this day, and when it rang the third time, I was jittery. And when I saw on the call ID that it was my mom calling from her cell phone, I knew it wasn't going to be a normal day. And so I didn't even say hello. I just answered and be like, "What's wrong?" And she just said, "I'm taking Dad to the emergency room right now." And so I went to my boss and said, I, I got to go, you know, and left work, drove to Putnam County Hospital in Greencastle, Indiana, and got there and was assessing the situation. And, and I don't know why. Maybe, maybe it's because I'd already been a pastor long enough and I'd spent a lot of time at hospitals. Maybe all of it didn't quite feel real yet, but I wasn't nervous at all. I mean, I was looking at He was really sick, but I didn't see anything to be panicked about, anything to be overly fearful about until one conversation happened later that day in the afternoon. And my mom was talking uh, with Dr. McCardle, who is a longtime trusted family doctor there in Cloverdale. And at my urging, I said, mom asked him if, if we could possibly move dad to another hospital, like Hendricks Regional or Methodist, Indianapolis, where you know, they're bigger hospitals. They have more resources, more trained doctors. You just get a higher level of care there. And Dr. McCardle has always been open to this in the past. And he just looked at my mom and said, Marla, he's where he needs to be. Well, that wasn't enough for me. So I pushed it a little farther. I said, wait, is it, are you telling me there's not better care available at like a Hendrix Regional? And he said, yes, there is. But your dad might not survive the transfer. And that was the moment that that day became very real to me. Right? The, the weight and the seriousness of the matter just, just kind of crystallized. Like, oh, we're dealing with a whole other animal here. Right? And it changed every conversation we had after it, every decision we made, every prayer we prayed, and then more and more. Now, I'm not going to leave you in suspension, right? Like, like my dad's fine. In fact, I spent time with him this week. He's healthy. Praise the Lord. But we've been studying 2 Timothy all year, this letter from Paul to Timothy, and I thought about that day as we got to this section of the letter, because we've made our way through the majority of the letter, and here at the end, we're coming to the close of it, we see a moment for Timothy that would have been similar to that one, where kind of the gravity and the seriousness of the situation would all of a sudden become clear to him. See, Paul, when he wrote this letter, he's already spent at least the last two years in prison under guard in Rome. He's, he's had time to look around at things in, in pretty great detail. He's looked around at everything that surrounds him. He's looked back on his life. He's looked at what is coming ahead, and there are some realizations that he's come to that actually uh, led him to writing Timothy this letter, and one of those realizations has been this, that he's about to die, and he knows it. It's not just that he senses it, it's not just that he feels it, he's confident of it. And so as we go through chapter 4, there's going to be nothing in this latter part of the letter that's like a brand new command, right? Nothing about ministry. It's this new revelation, Nothing this new thing that Paul wants Timothy to do. But everything that we're going to see in chapter 4 is going to help clarify for us everything that came in 1 Timothy and everything that came in 2 Timothy before it. Because it's his final parting shot. Now, most of us, I would argue, live lives that are just simply too busy. In fact, I think this is undeniable. But one of the biggest negatives of busyness is it robs us of our time to actually do what I would call process our lives. That we don't have time to to actually slow down and ask ourselves some really good questions. Questions like, how how in the world did I end up here? If if I stay on this current trajectory, this current trend that I'm on, where's that gonna take me in a few years? Instead, we have no time to look around, we have no time to look back, no time to look forward. And so my prayer has been as we close out this letter in the next few weeks. That for these sermons, these Sundays, for 30 minutes on a Sunday, for your group time, for discussion with others, that that the Lord would actually grant you the time to pause. The time to actually think and reflect and process. Are you truly living for the right things? Are you pursuing what really, truly matters? Is your eternity secure? If you die today, would you have confidence that your soul is indeed going to heaven? Could you write a letter to one of your loved ones with the exact same clear conscience and bold confidence that Paul has when he writes this one? And if you don't like the answers to those questions, then the strong, strong recommendation is that you take advantage of the time you have left and the godly gift of repentance before it's too late. And so I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up to read today's passage. He's going to be reading for us in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And he's going to read verses 6 and 7. If you're physically capable, would you please stand with Chris to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, buddy. Good morning. For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Thank you, sir. You guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open to 2 Timothy 4. We're going to zero in on those two verses. And as always, any supporting verses, we'll throw on the screen for you. But the first thing that I want to look at is pretty obvious, right? We've been, we've been telling you about this the entire letter. We've been building to this section, which Paul makes this revelation that he's, he's his time is coming to a close. But Paul's attitude towards it is worth our inspection today. It's worth us talking about. And so the first truth is that Paul knows he's about to die. And this is becoming obvious to him. He'd been in prison for years, and if you look at verse 17 of chapter 4, he mentions, uh, he refers to a hearing that he's already had there in Rome. Now, we don't know what happened to that hearing, but here's what we do know. He's still in jail, right? He wasn't released, okay? And so it didn't go his way. That's what we know, right? Whatever happened to that hearing, it didn't go in his favor. And so he's figured out what's coming. And which makes the language that he uses so powerful, even like little transitions. And there's one I want to point out to you, right? And throughout the letter, in fact, in First and Second Timothy, he uses this uh, phrase, but you, Timothy. Right? And it always stands in contrast to what he's just written about. It's always like, there'll be people who'll be lovers of money. There'll be false teachers. There'll be people who do this. But you, Timothy, that's not, that's not who you'll be. In fact, last week, Adam covered uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and he used it again. All right, verses 3 and 4 is all about uh, the rise in demand for false teachers, right? The people will gather around them, teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And there it is in verse 5 again. But as for you, Timothy, do your job. Don't give in to any of that. You do your job. You fulfill your ministry. You do the work of evangelists. But for the first time in the letter, I want you to see this contrast. That phrase, but you, is meant to stand in contrast not just to what came before it, but also what is coming right after it. Because Paul starts verse 6 with this phrase, for I. I'm already being poured out. Do you get where he's going with this? This section of the letter, more than any other, is the most emotionally charged and loaded thing that Paul ever wrote to Timothy. Because he's passing the torch to his young protege. He's just told him the need to be faithful in ministry and teaching the future. And then he tells him, you need to do this, Timothy, and here's why. Because I can't anymore. You've got to do this because I can't. You need to carry the torch. I'm not going to be able to because my time is coming to a close. My, my ministry is wrapping up. And so I'm giving this privilege and this calling to you. And he uses two phrases that, that paint for us a picture of a man that is just not afraid of death but actually, actually ready for it. And the first phrase he says in verse, in verse uh, 6, that I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now, you got to remember, the Apostle Paul was a Jewish man. He, he was a former Pharisee. And so he, had, at one point in his life, he would memorized the Old Testament law. So he would know full well in Numbers 28, where uh, we were told in Numbers 28 that, that, that in the Old Testament law, every day at both morning and twilight, Levitical priests were to pour out a fermented drink on the altar as an offering to the Lord, right? And it was supposed to be happening daily, daily, twice a day, right? And this imagery stuck in Paul's mind, and he used it often in his writing, There's one chapter, Philippians 2, where he he uses this twice. And the first is when he was talking about Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8, he writes, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he'd come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And that phrase, emptied himself, is the same Greek root of the idea of pouring yourself out. So when Paul writes in Philippians 2 that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider that anything to be used for his advantage, instead he poured himself out all the way to the point of death on the cross. Later in that same chapter, Paul refers to himself in a similar way, Philippians 2.17. when He writes, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So if you remember this idea of the daily sacrifice, you see a beautiful picture. Paul saw his life as a daily sacrifice uh, that each and every day he's going to be poured out for Jesus Christ. Now, here at the end, there's a slight shift, right? And and it reminds me of Jesus in John 10. When Jesus tells his followers in John 10, there's not going to be anybody who takes my life from me. I'm going to lay it down. He's saying, it's going to look like other people are in charge, but don't don't make any mistake. I lay my life down. Paul's telling Timothy here, Caesar's not going to take my life. Right? I am going to be completing my sacrifice by pouring out my life for Jesus Christ. Now, what's even more beautiful is after that chapter in Philippians 2, he writes in Philippians 3, Paul writes that he wanted to know Christ. He wanted to share in his sufferings and be conformed to the likeness of his death. And guess what? Now he's going to be able to. This has been his aim all along and is coming to fruition. The second phrase he uses is that the time for my departure is close. Now, that Greek word that we translate in departures is analysis, right? And it's only used twice in the Bible, here in Philippians 1. But the, but the formal definition is an unloosing or departing. And, and in reading up on it this week, uh, there are scholars who are saying that in addition to the formal definition, there were three, that, that word was used uh, for three common sort of slang sayings of the day. And if you know Paul's story, right? if you know his writings, you, you recognize quickly that all three meanings of this word would carry uh, extra weight and significance for him. Right? Because the first one, the first meaning of this word of departure is simply just to set sail. Right? It, is a, it was an actual sailing phrase. And if you remember in, in Acts, you read, Paul spent a lot of time on boats. Right? And so it would be used to describe the actual loosening of the anchor and then taking off. And the Bible presents to us this imagery that, that, that sin... Right, the curse of sin, our own sinful nature, the, the fallen world that we're in, the breaking down of our bodies, all of these are anchors that are holding the follower of Jesus back. They're all anchors weighing us down, keeping us from total peace and fullness in Jesus Christ. And in his bodily death, Paul was going to be able to loosen the anchor and sail off to the fullness of life in heaven in Jesus. He's telling Timothy, I'm, I'm about to set sail. He's looking forward to it second common meaning was to take down a tent. You might recognize why that would mean something to Paul too. Paul spent time as a tent maker in Corinth. And so just as he would have been fully aware of the Salem phrase, he would know this one full well too. And it wasn't the first time he wrote about this concept. In 2 Corinthians 5, he actually talks about a physical death in the context of a tent, which he compares our earthly bodies to tents. And he says that these tents were in these temporary structures, and while we're in them, we groan in our burden. Can anybody say amen to that? While we're in them, we groan and are burning. We're longing, Paul writes, for an immortal body and an eternal home. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, death is simply the taking down of our tent and trading it in for the internal, unfading building that God has prepared for us. Paul's saying, I'm I'm trading in this temporary body for a permanent glorified one. And the last meaning of this phrase is the loosing or freeing of a prisoner. And once again, Paul will be familiar with this. Because in addition to sailing a lot, in addition to being a tip maker, Paul knew life as a, as a prisoner well. The persecution he faced put him in that position multiple times. He spent years under guard in Rome at the point of writing this letter. And he knows, however, on this letter, he knows he's not getting help. He knows he won't be released. And so why would this phrase be meaningful to him? Because he is being freed. He's not being released from prison and back to a life of really hard, grueling service for Jesus. He's being freed forever to his permanent home where his reward waits. We could see Paul's confidence in the eternity Jesus bought for him all the way back in Philippians 1. When he writes about this sort of internal wrestle and struggle he has, he says in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He writes, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful for work for me, and I don't know which one I choose. Listen to this language. I'm torn between the two because I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now, in the last letter he wrote that we have in our scriptures, he's writing to Timothy, I don't have to be torn anymore. That, 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 that tornness is gone. He's heading towards his gain, towards the Jesus that he serves so well, and the time for his departure is close. The second thing that you can see that just jumps off the pages of these verses is that Paul's conscience is clean. It's clean. And in our study of this letter, we, we've already talked about how finishing well, right, staying faithful is a great gift that you can give to others in your life. Just, just the idea of just not being another hurdle for them to overcome, of being a godly example to those we love, is one of the best things that we can do for them. But now in chapter 4, we get to see how great a blessing that is to yourself. It's not that Paul was perfect. It's not that Paul had zero regrets as he looked back over his life. In fact, remember in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, he says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And listen to this, and I'm the worst of them. Paul knows he wasn't perfect. He a former persecutor of the church. He was a blasphemer. There were sins he committed. There were mistakes that he made. There were thorns that he wrestled with. But God's grace in Jesus Christ is sufficient for all of that and more. The blood of Jesus Christ covered all of Paul's sins when he believed in him, and the same promise is available to us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ and repent of being our own God and our own solution, Jesus' death is fully sufficient. All our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven through his glorious sacrifice. This is why Paul did not need to be perfect to have confidence in Jesus. It's why he just needed to be faithful. And it's why the consistent call in Scriptures is for us to be faithful. Will we do what God tells us to do? Will we go where he leads us to go? Will we serve as he designed us to serve? Will we live in loving, faithful obedience to him? And to see this, right, in the book of Acts, we actually get, if you read, if you read the New Testament through, we get to see God's calling on Paul's life before Paul even knew about it. Because Acts chapter 9, Jesus comes to Ananias and tells him to go pray for this man named Saul. And Ananias like, you sure, Lord? Because you know who he is, right? And this is what Jesus says to him. The Lord said to him, go for this man. He's talking about Paul. This man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. By the way, Paul did all that. All of it. He went to the Israelites and shared the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went to the Gentiles and shared the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, often at great risk and harm to himself. And while enduring persecutions through his trials, he stood before all the highest levels of earthly government and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And he suffered immensely for the name of Jesus, which is why he could write this in verse 7. I have fought the good fight... I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. There are three images that he uses there. The first two were athletic images that he uses elsewhere in his writing of a boxer who fought well and a racer who ran his race by the rules and was victorious. But the third one was an image of a a steward. This is a concept we need to grasp, because a steward is someone who doesn't own anything, but instead is given something to manage and trust and keep and pass on by the rightful owner. And Paul was a steward of the faith. He was a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a steward of Christian truth. He was a steward of churches, and he was a steward of people like Timothy. These were gifts that were entrusted to him, and he was faithful to them. And he's been trying to ensure that Timothy will as well. Remember what he wrote for him to him in chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us? That's steward language. There's been something positive to you, Timothy. There's something trusted to you. Be faithful with it. And I want us to just for a second consider verse 7 again. I want us to think about the freedom to be able to write this as the epitaph for your life, that I have fought the good fight, I'd finished the race that you marked out for me, Lord, and I have kept the faith. It's a remarkable statement that few could honestly and freely declare. But the question I want us to consider is this. Why wouldn't you want that to be you? What is it exactly about a clear conscience that you wouldn't want What is it about confidence in the face of death that that you would not like? What is it about the freedom of believing that you have honored God with faithfulness that does not appeal to you? You see, we're all stewards, all of us. We don't own anything. There's nothing that's ours. It, It all belongs to the Lord, and he has entrusted us with things by his grace. Our lives. Our talents, our possessions, our skills, our relationships, our families, our resources, our spiritual gifts, our ministries, our good works, on and on and on. We don't own any of this stuff. It's his. But they've been entrusted to us by an almighty God, and he's looking for a return on his investment. he's called us to faithfulness with the very things that he's entrusted us with. And so how how is it that we get there? How could we, at the end of our life, freely and honestly be able to say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith? Well, we'd be wise to be thinking about the end before it comes. Because when the end comes, it's too late to get things in order. And I hope this isn't a spoiler alert for anybody out there, but you're going to die one day. You're going to pass from this earthly life to an eternal existence, and to ignore that is to ignore the most blatantly obvious reality we all face. Now, we don't all get the foreshadowing that Paul got. We don't get to see it coming right before it comes. We won't all know when it's coming, but man, we can all know it is coming, right? And so we should consider this reality and think about that end before it's here. And there are three encouragements I have for you today that will help prepare us for this. And the first is this, is to take care of your biggest problem. The biggest problem in your life is your sin. It's not not somebody else's sin. It's not your adversaries. It's not your enemies. It's not your stresses. It's not your struggles. It's not not, uh, politics. It's not anything out there that you think is weighing you down. The biggest problem in your life is your sin. The biggest problem in my life is my own sin. It separates me from God. It kills life and joy in my existence. It curses me. It puts us in a state of spiritual death. And if it's not paid for, your sin will condemn you to hell. If your sins are not forgiven, your earthly death won't be any kind of release, and You won't be setting sail off to anything good at all. You'll just continue in a state of spiritual death and torment forever. And so it's only in Jesus Christ that we can laugh in the face of death. Because Jesus is the only sinless being who ever died, so it's only his death that can be substitutionary and take our place and pay our price instead of his own, which is why in John 14 he says, I am the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through who? Except through me. Jesus is like, there's no other way. Romans 6 puts it clear. The wages, right? The cost of our sin is It's death, but the gift of God is eternal life, the opposite of death. In who? It's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you will never be made right with God. You will never, your conscience will never be clean before him. You will never be allowed into his presence for all eternity if your sins are not forgiven and taken care of. But praise God, he made a way for that to happen and he took all the cost on himself. He sent Jesus to the cross to, pay, to take your place and pay your price. So if you believe in Jesus alone and you trust in his death and resurrection to forgive you and of your sins, you are forgiven in full and are granted this wondrous gift of eternal life. And there is no other way. It's Jesus alone. And so to have real hope and confidence at the end of your earthly life, it begins with a belief and faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you have not listened to me, believe in Jesus. Believe in his death and resurrection to pay your price and to take your place. Believe in him, and I mean him alone, to save you. And in doing so, your greatest problem and gravest threat will be covered. And when that's in place, go to work on increasing your affection for God. There's a few scriptures I want you to just pause and consider for a moment this morning. And the first is in James 1 that tells us every. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Romans 5 tells us this, that God has proven, beyond any reasonable doubt, God has proven his own love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And even more simply, 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. The scriptural case is open and shut. Every good thing we have has come from God. He has proven his love for us on the cross of Jesus Christ, and the only reason that we could ever love him is because he made the move towards us first. He loved us first. It's open and shut. There's nothing more that God could ever do or give to prove that he is worthy of our love and our devotion and our affection. Nothing. And yet, we are so apt to give those things away to lesser things, aren't we? Someone or something else gets our affection. Someone or something else robs our devotion. Someone or something else steals our attention. Someone or something else takes our passion or demands our sacrifice. But in order to have a clean conscience at the end, to be able to state freely and honestly what Paul did, we must always fight this. We must pray against the propensity of our hearts to wander. We must pray against our tendency to give our affection to lesser things. We must remind ourselves of the worthiness of God alone and pursue that relationship we have with our Creator is find those things that that pour gas onto that fire and make room for them in our lives, giving him priority. Man, grandma and grandpa, dads and moms, you know one of the best prayers you can pray over your kids is that their affection for Jesus will override every other affection in their life. And by the way, while you're praying that, go ahead and pray that for yourself as well. Because we all need this. We take care of our biggest problem by trusting Jesus with it. We increase our affections for God. And then thirdly, we let faithfulness be our aim. We let faithfulness be the aim. Right? Because as your affection for God grows, so will your obedience. Jesus always equated love with obedience. And, and obedience gets a bad rap, right? We often think of, of obedience as some sort of weight or chain that holds us back. And that's incredibly far from the truth. Do you know obedience to the Lord Jesus is a wild road to travel? It's it's crazy. In fact, let's let's go back. Let's think about in, in, in Acts nine when Jesus tells Ananias what Paul was going to do for Christ and His kingdom. All right, this is what he was saying. He's going to travel the known world. He's going to overcome immense challenges and oppositions. He's going to plant churches in, in multiple cities. He's going to invest in and pray, prepare and send out others for ministry. He's going to be brought before the highest offices on the planet. And by the way, his story and his writings are going to be included in God's eternal word forever. And when Jesus told Ananias this, Paul, you know what Paul was doing? He was sitting in Damascus blind, weak, and hungry. He had no delusions of grandeur. None whatsoever. But he was committed to saying yes to the Jesus who just confronted him on the Damascus Road. And Paul got to experience everything that Jesus described in the years to come, not because he was special, not because he was great, not because he was different, but because he was faithful. Because he's just saying yes. See, God always has better plans than us. And what we often miss is that they're often grander than we would imagine. He always wants to use us for his kingdom more than we want to be used for. We're the ones that hold it back. And we experience these things. We are stretched. We make a difference. We take risks. We leave good legacies just by being faithful in the moment. By seeing ourselves as stewards who own nothing and must give God a return on what he's loaned to us. It's why it strips throughout all the scriptures. But one of the most famous ones is in Proverbs 3 in which we are told to trust the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how often we fail at that? To trust the Lord completely and not rely on any of our own wisdom or understanding. It goes on to say, in all your ways, know him. Acknowledge him. Don't forget the God vector. And in doing so, he's going to make your path straight. We do this... By simply laying a yes before God. Before he even asks us, we tell him, all right, God, it's a yes. And so there's two questions we should be repeatedly asking ourselves. The first is more in the day-to-day kind of moment-to-moment. And the question is this, what, what could I do? What would I do in this moment that would please God? And whatever that is, do that thing. And the second question to ask yourself is when you're making life decisions or choices or big kind of big picture things is simply this, is God asking me or asking us to do this? That's the only question that matters. It's not, does the math work? It's not, is the timing right? It's not, does, it, is this, does this make logical sense? Is God asking us to do this? Because if so, it's a yes. And you lay that yes before him before we even ask. Is there something you want me to do, God? Yes. Right? We, don't need it to all, we don't need to understand the timing. We don't need it all to make sense. We don't need it to be convenient or easy. If he's asking, yes, hard period. We obey, we do it, and we trust him with the rest. And here's what you'll discover. If you start stacking yeses on top of yeses on top of yeses, you say yes to God when he leads you to do something, and you say yes again, and then you say yes again, one day you're going to look around and be like, how in the world did I get here? Not in my wildest dreams that I think this would be my path or that I could be used by God for something like this, to which King Jesus would say, my child, this was the plan all along. You just couldn't see it. And one day we're going to stand before a holy, awesome God and everything we've ever done will be laid bare before the judgment seat of Christ. And the time to think about and prepare for that day is now. Right now, not then. And so the questions are: are your sins forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you put the fullness of your faith and trust in him? If not, do so today. Do it now before you don't have time left. And if you have... Would you be able to freely say with clear conscience before that, God, I have fought the good fight, I finished the race that you marked out for me, and I kept the faith? To do so, you must increase your affection for the Lord. Never let His love and goodness be far from your mind, and start stacking yeses on top of yeses on top of yeses, and run the race of faithful obedience wherever it is that He takes you. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the example and scriptures that we have of the Apostle Paul. I'm so thankful for the picture that we have of, of his faithful obedience of just saying yes again and again and again. When, when he's stoned outside the city and stands up and walks right back into it. When he's mistreated in one synagogue and walks right back in the next one. When he, when he lives a life of simple obedience to you time and time and time again, and you use these small, yes, as you use these day-to-day sacrifices, and you poured out his life as an offering to you. Lord, would you raise up in FBN a congregation of people who are daily poured out for you, God, is there's anybody within the sound of my voice who's not yet, Lord, who's not given their lives to Jesus Christ, who does not have their eternal standing secure with you, that the biggest problem in their life is still one that they have no answer for, then we pray that today would be their day of salvation. And then, Lord, for the rest of us, as we come to the communion table together this morning, God, as we have time to reflect and pause and remember the sacrifice that you paid for us, would you increase our affection for you? Would you lay down idols and things that we've given far too much of our heart to? We repent of those at the foot of the cross of Jesus today. And then God, would you raise up in us a willingness, a sternness, even a godly stubbornness to say yes to whatever you bring along our path and to simply trust you with the rest. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful and awesome name. Amen. Before we have the privilege of taking communion together as the body of Christ this morning, we give you a couple moments just to, to prepare for that by maybe responding to some things he's put in your heart or some things he's said to you today. And then after a couple of minutes of that, if you using that time, take advantage of it, please. Uh, Pastor Adam will come up and lead us in a time of communion. But this is your time with the Lord now. Please use it.